Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Guten Tag, everybody. Guten Tag. Yeah. Oh. Doesn't that mean hello in German or something? I guess. I, don't, I think it means good evening. Yeah, well, hey. What it a is evening. What a coincidence. It is evening. Yeah, okay. So, guten Tag, everybody. <laughs> Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. It is getting cold out. It is. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Snarf, snarf. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Mm. Episode 92. What's what's that backwards? 29? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I don't know how that... It has no bearing on anything. Oh, I so just, it just means it was a, That was just a test. It's testing you. You passed it, Mike. Well done. <laughs> Thank goodness. Well done. 92! Jesus! On with the show. Whew. This week we're headed to the province of Quebec. The home of Poutine. <laughs> Our story begins along the St. Lawrence River, 66 kilometers north, in an unorganized territory called Soute au Cochon. There, on the morning of September 9th, 1949, an eel fisherman's tranquil morning was shattered. Looking up, Patrick Simard saw a plane flying low overhead. He watched for a few moments when he saw and heard what he called an explosion in the front third of the plane. He witnessed debris and seat cushions falling from the badly damaged aircraft, now billowing smoke and falling from the morning sky toward the forest below. One piece of debris that was ejected from the plane was a grey box that landed nearby where Simard was fishing. He was that close. Looking at his watch, he noted it was 10.45 a.m. The plane zigged and suddenly began to turn on its side before it smashed into a rocky tree-covered hill called Cape Torment. Located a few kilometers northeast of St. Joachim, a tiny parish municipality in rural Quebec. When CP Airlines Flight 108, a McDonnell Douglas DC-3 hit the bluff and rolled down into the forest below, all 23 aboard 
19 passengers and 4 crew were killed. Up to that point, this crash was Canada's third worst air disaster. The exact cause of the tragic wreck was initially unclear, but eyewitness reports indicated that the possibility of an explosion in the luggage compartment of the passenger plane could not be ruled out. Investigators began to uncover details of a story of infidelity, greed, and cold-blooded murder. This is collateral damage, the bombing of CP Air Flight 108. Oh, these, uh, these kind of cases fascinate me. I mean, I know CBC just did a recent one, and that was a completely new mm-hmm. and surprised the hell out of me. And here's another one yeah. that I, I'm unaware of. There's just something extremely fascinating about these kind of cases. I agree. It's a different kind of case, for sure, that we're covering here. Yeah. But I've looked at the CBC one that they covered that happened here in BC, Mm -hmm. and I thought, we've covered a lot of things in BC, but where we haven't been a lot is one of the largest provinces in Canada, which is Quebec. Yeah. So this is why we're... I'm stoked. Week. Yeah. No, well, not stoked for the, the crime itself, but stoked to hear, hear about this case. Flight 103 originated in Montreal at 9 a.m. that morning and had two stops before the final destination, Septile, which is seven islands, a fishing community almost 900 kilometers northeast at the mouth of the St. Lawrence and west of the Gaspé Peninsula. The first stop of the day was historic Quebec City, where more passengers and cargo were loaded aboard. Next stop was to be Bay Como, further up the scenic St. Lawrence. Flight 108 had departed Quebec City five minutes late, and it was only 16 minutes out of Quebec City when the disaster happened. Oh, okay. This five minutes will be very important later on. Ironically, this particular McDonnell Douglas model DC-3A360 had made it through World War II in one piece. According to aircraft historian Jack McKillop on his site 1000aircraftphotos.com, this aircraft flew for the United States Air Force as a C-47DL, serial number 41-18456, beginning her service in 1942 assigned to the 4th Troop Carrier Squadron, 62nd Troop Carrier Group at Keevil, Wilshire, England. Fascinating. So, she, so yeah. it survived a war. Well, it gets a, oh. a big part of the war, actually. Ooh, okay. She was stationed later in Algeria and Tunisia. The plane served in the invasion of North Africa, dropping paratroopers to attack German installations there. And later in the war, this plane saw action flying out of Sicily and Italy. Hmm. McKillop wrote, During later active duty, the plane, quote, towed gliders and dropped paratroopers during the invasion of Sicily in July 1943, dropped paratroopers in northern Italy in June 1944 to harass the retreating Germans, towed gliders and dropped paratroopers during the invasion of southern France in August 1944, and during the Allied assault on Greece in October 1944. Wow! Right? So this is... It's, it didn't just like it wasn't just like you used stationed it once. like yeah. yeah yeah exactly it was used over and over again throughout the war wow this plane retired from active duty in late 1945 and was sold as surplus and then was sold to quote Canadian Pacific Airlines of Vancouver British Columbia Canada on August 31st 1946 
After conversion to a civil DC-3C, the aircraft was registered CF-CUA on February 6, 1947 and assigned to fleet number 280. And this is when it became a passenger plane. Well, how interesting is that? I mean, I don't think in current times passenger planes that we fly on commercial jets and have planes been, I don't they don't have this kind of history well they definitely haven't been in World War two <laughs> but I'm, I don't think military planes get converted over maybe not like anymore, individual no. personally owned but uh, not converted over no. into passenger carriers so it's just kind of it's interesting to think that people were on this plane. They had no idea the history of it. Well, just so you know a little bit more of the history, C-47s are the planes you've seen in pretty much every World War II movie and the miniseries about D-Day, like uh, Band of Brothers, where under heavy anti-aircraft fire, terrified but courageous paratroopers drop into the hornet's nest of enemy below. So it's one of these kind of yeah, planes. Yeah, I, I have a vision in my head of what it looks like, and I'm pretty sure it's correct because it it's what I see in every yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the paratroopers, many of these planes did not survive even their first mission. Jeez. This one made it through some of the most violent battles in the war, only to crash into a forest in Quebec during peacetime. Not Yeah, okay. It's an odd comfort that it was not a mechanical malfunction of this historic plane that was the cause of her demise. Hmm, okay. So a little foreshadowing. Yeah. Nor was the crash caused directly by anybody on board. Hmm. At the helm that morning was Quebec City-born 30-year-old Captain Pierre Laurent. Laurent was a pilot with seven solid years of flying experience. He joined CP Airlines in 1942, only to take leave and join the Royal Canadian Air Force as a pilot that same year. Oh. He'd flown in at least 20 bombing raids during the war over Africa, Asia, and Europe. After his discharge at the end of World War II, Canadian Pacific welcomed him back. Lauren's young wife, Marta, was due to give birth at any moment. They also had a two-year-old son. Regardless of possible family distractions, Lauren was known to be a professional, Calm and cool as a cucumber, always meticulous in his operation of any aircraft that he flew. So, not only did the plane make it and survive through war, as did the pilot. Correct. The captain. Wow. First officer or flight engineer was named Gordon Alexander. He was a native of Brantford, Ontario, and he'd moved his wife and young son back to the region after flying for CP out of Edmonton for a time. Okay. The head stewardess was Mrs. Gertrude McKay, and she was from Lethbridge, and she'd worked out of Edmonton for years. But after her husband was killed in a car crash, Gertrude transferred with CP to Montreal to start a new life. Oh, okay. The second officer killed in the crash was not named in any of the English publications I read while researching. Oh. Um, so, and I translated a few from French, but I mm -hmm. couldn't find this person's name. Oh, that's fascinating. I prefer to give a complete accounting of the victims and name them all usually, but in this case, the entire list doesn't seem to be available. Mm -hmm. We do know that there were 10 men, six women, and three children on the plane. Two of the three children were listed as babes in arms, not requiring a seat. Oh, so that was, like, it's crazy to think that was an option at one time. Yes. Like, you just, like... I think it still is. You don't need to buy a seat for an infant. I don't believe. Ooh, I don't know. The families with infants were named. All four of the Chapado family lost their lives. The parents, an 11-month-old boy, and his teenage sister. 
They'd been visiting family in Quebec. Oh, shit. Mr. and Mrs. Henri Paul of Bay Como, returning home from a vacation, were killed along with their infant child. Ugh. There was another teenager, a boy. Two Bank of Montreal bank inspectors, C. Humphreys and A.R. Keller, both from Montreal, were also killed. <laughs> Two executives, E.J. Callan and William Schooler from the St. Catharines-based Ontario Paper Company, died in the crash. Mm. Three top executives from the American Kennecott Copper Company in New York had been on the plane to investigate property that contained titanium in the region near Septil. They were the company's president, E.T. Stannard, his successor, Arthur D. Stork, and vice president, R.J. Parker. So, hmm. holy crap. Like, yeah, you've lost the whole uh, operation. Uh, of one particular company, yeah. the upper upper echelon yeah. there. But, so, it looks like there's a lot of interesting characters on this plane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. There was a woman who was traveling by herself. Her name was Mrs. J. Albert Guay, and her birth name was Rita Morel. She was the wife of a well-known Quebec City jeweler. Hmm. Five CN railmen, working two kilometers from the crash, saw and heard the plane going down. They were there that day on what was called a jigger, and it's a small gas-powered rig that drives them along the tracks so they can work the tracks. Okay. There were no roads in and out of this area for like three or four miles. Mm, yeah, very remote. Very, very remote. Yeah. So once they saw this plane crash, they dropped what they were doing and rushed in to help, knowing that they were the only hope for anybody who might be a survivor in that remote area. Well, it must be quite terrifying because you know you have to do something. You're the only people around. But, yep. in your, but you're also just terrified of what am I about to encounter. Yep. The men had to fight their way through dense brush and climb a steep incline to the scene. Mm. When they arrived, they saw no sign of fire at all, just twisted metal and debris everywhere. The plane's two motors had been buried in the soft earth where the plane had come to rest. <sighs> Clearly visible in the tangled wreckage were bodies of the crash victims. Oh no. From a Windsor Star article published on the day after the crash, CN Rail sectionman Oscar Trombley said he'd quote, seen arms and legs and even heads torn from bodies all jammed in the twisted front of the plane. The force of the plane smashing into Cape Torment had thrown everything not nailed down, including passengers, toward the front of the wreck. The men searched, calling for survivors, but quickly realized there were none, and they went for help. Yeah, so as we've talked about often, you know, the, the victims don't end with the individual's involved no like they, there's witnesses first responders, first responders. Mm -hmm. there's trauma to be had by every families so, afterward it and trickles with... so these poor these poor poor workers you you don't come into work expecting that day to see such trauma no the quebec provincial police were notified and they came in to secure the area uh, that first night they wanted to secure it for reasons of keeping the uh investigation clean mm -hmm. and also plane crashes were known to draw looters. Oh, really? Yeah. Amid the preparations wow. to remove the bodies were also calls to officials to come out and investigate the scene for the cause of this horrible crash, obviously. Mm. The pilot had given no indication of any issue with the flight. The last communication he'd had was with the tower ten minutes before the crash had occurred and six minutes after taking off from Quebec City. Mm-hmm. 
Upon hearing of the money connected to some of the names on the flight, a few thought espionage might be the cause. Yep. Perhaps someone with a motive to gain from the deaths of the executives on the flight had put a bomb on board, but that was unheard of in those days. But I can see why that's where uh, the thinking would uh, gravitate towards. These conspiracy speculators were actually not too far off track. However, it wasn't as simple as they'd surmised. Never is. A 15-man crew led by an undertaker had the grim task of body recovery over the next few days. Twenty of the bodies were found between layer upon layer of the seats all piled on top of one another with those of the flight crew at the very front of the plane or the bottom of the pile. A body was also found 150 feet up the hill toward the bluff where the plane had initially hit. The next morning, another body that had also been thrown clear was found nearby broken and battered. Mm. Oddly, although the force of the crash had thrown everything in the passenger compartment toward the front of the plane, there were, according to an article in the New Yorker, bits of flesh that had been spattered against the back of the passenger compartment, indicating that there had been some violent rearward thrust. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, it with an impact, everything's going to go to the front. So if you've got splatter on the back, something would have had to have happened pre-impact. Correct. The 23rd victim, Henri Paul Bouchard, was missing for some time until it was determined that the minimal parts that were left of him had already been gathered up with the rest of the remains. It was assumed that Bouchard was, sadly, nearly vaporized in the explosion as, according to his seat number, he appeared to have been the closest person to it. Oh, wow. The bodies were moved to the railway by horse and manpower where they were put on a special train loaded by the CN Railway and filled with coffins to take the bodies back to a morgue in Quebec City. There, they were forensically autopsied and then released to the families for burial. After identification, of course. Investigators quickly determined that the, the problem didn't involve electrical systems. All the batteries were fine. The fuel, too, had not burned, and there was no evidence of fire on the engines. In fact, the engines had been turning when they crashed into the ground. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Everything pointed to some kind of mysterious explosion that had come from the luggage compartment. But what had caused it? Some of the first responders, familiar with the smell, thought they'd smelled a strong indication of the distinct odor of dynamite when sifting through the wreckage. Dynamite. There was no indication that there was any dynamite on the plane's manifest. Mm. And how would dynamite have ended up aboard a passenger plane anyway? Because it was still illegal to transport dynamite on a passenger plane at that point. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis was officially calling the crash an accident. But why were there whispers of sabotage even in the papers? According to his 1951 article in Maclean's magazine, a Quebec-based reporter, Roger Lemelin, had been driving his car when he heard a news flash on the radio about a plane disintegrating in midair as if blown up by dynamite. Mm-hmm. Upon hearing that Rita Morel was among the dead, he pulled the car over. He was distraught. She was the wife of Quebec City jeweler and across-the-street neighbor and friend of his named Joseph Albert Gouet. Okay. 
Wow. I can imagine why you'd pull over. You're like, oh my, I know this person. Yeah. I, I know the victim and I know the, that's right. the victim's uh, husband. Quote, the first thought that came to my mind was why that's Albert's wife. And incredible as that may seem, looking back, my second reaction was, Albert had something to do with that explosion. Well, End quote. You're gonna you're gonna trust the people who know these individuals best. So if he knows them, <laughs> this thought was quickly echoed by another close friend of both Gway and Lemelin. Both of the men publicly laughed it off, but the suspicion continued to nag. Interesting. A coroner's jury suggested in their verdict that explosives, quote, might have been aboard the aircraft and the plane had gone down due to an explosion in the forward luggage compartment causing a catastrophic loss of control of the aircraft. The cause of death on each death certificate was to be, quote, accidental death due to an explosion of undetermined origin. Mm. There was no mention of homicide at this time. Well, and this was very early on. And forensic tools back then certainly aren't what they are now. So nope. it's not as easy to jump to and find uh, the cause as it is now. The ensuing weeks brought lots of speculation and rumor, too. One rumor kept bubbling up and would not go away. Apparently, a mystery woman in a terrible rush had given ground crew at the airport a package that she insisted must be placed on that flight before it left. Okay. Okay, okay. If this rumor was true, who was she? Had she been the bomber? Roger Lemelin wondered whether she had some connection to J. Albert Gway. That gut feeling would just not go away. Well, as soon as you mentioned uh, a female rushed a package there, if true, my instant thought was, oh, is this why... Uh, Albert maybe did it, possibly, because this is his uh, girlfriend. And hmm. Hmm. Well, we'll take a break right here, and we'll come back with some answers to these questions. Whew. And we're back. Correct. Just who was Albert Gway? From E.J. Kahn's New Yorker article titled, It Has No Name, quote, Joseph Albert Gway was born on September 22, 1917, in Charney, Quebec, on the south shore of the St. Lawrence, just across the river from Quebec City. He was the youngest of five children of a brakeman who had worked for the Canadian National Railways and who had been killed in a train accident when the boy was five. Nearly all French-Canadian children are given two Christian names, the first of which is usually Joseph or Marie, as the case may be, to avoid confusion, the usual thing is to drop the biblical name and use only the middle one. But Gway didn't do this. Although his family had called him Albert when he grew up, he insisted on prefacing this with the initial J, a slightly out-of-the-ordinary touch designed to help give him the stature he always aspired to. Okay, yeah, Scott D. Hemingway can relate. <laughs> As he was the youngest, uh, the baby in the family, he was doted on and spoiled, but he was viciously ambitious. He wanted to be rich, even famous, at one point wanting to be, quote, a singer and orchestra leader, but he had no musical talent. Well, that can kind of hinder that goal. It could. Gway grew into a well-mannered, slim and good-looking young man. He was known to be a snappy dresser, 
Women were drawn to his charisma and charm, and he used that to every advantage he could. Hmm. He lavished any girl that he was attracted to with gifts and attention, but he had a darker side as well. He was prone to jealous rages, in some cases for no apparent reason at all, often scaring his partners. One moment he was pleasant, kind, and chatty, but quickly could turn into a sulking grouch. Sounds uh, unhealthy. Yeah, unhealthy. He loved to brag about business plans he knew would lead him to the highest heights, but for some reason, nothing ever seemed to work out. Gway was working at the Quebec Arsenal when he met the raven-haired 21-year-old Rita Morel in 1940. He was immediately smitten with her, taking her dancing and ice skating, always at her side. They married with their parents' approval a year later, in 1941. They loved Gway's ambitious nature and thought Rita had found her match. Hmm, so parents' approval. After they were married, Gway's job at the arsenal kept him from having to be involved in overseas service during World War II. Oh, okay. So he was already serving, Yeah. but it was uh, here. Yeah. Gway had started selling jewelry at the arsenal to improve his family's income and found he could be quite successful at that. He, he was making the jewelry at that time? No, buy and sell. Kind oh, of okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. He left the arsenal near the end of the war and moved north with Rita to open his own jewelry store in Septil. Hmm. But the store tanked. Oh, okay. After their daughter Lise was born in 1945, the family returned to Quebec City, where Gway opened another jewelry store. Hopefully lessons learned. <laughs> yeah. In 1948, the Gways were living in a four-room apartment behind the store. Far from the success that Albert Gway had seen for himself, he was frustrated. Unknown to many of their family and friends, there was trouble in paradise as well. Mm -hmm. Rita and Albert were arguing a lot, especially as Rita was paying more attention to their daughter than him. He didn't like playing second fiddle to a child, even though he doted on her himself. Oh, I'm rolling my eyes. Jeez, of course the kid's going to take priority, you dillweed. Gway also had another secret. He was secretly in love and having a sexual relationship with a 16-year-old girl. Whoa, 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 whoa. This would be part of his eventual undoing. Whoa, let's hit the brakes here. 16-year-old? Because at this point, he's got to be in his late 20s. He's 30. 30. Okay. That's late 20s. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll get, into, we'll get into what the laws were at the time. But anyway... Just an hour after the plane crash, J. Albert Gway was at Chateau Frontenac where he'd bought the ticket for his wife's trip. He asked if it was his wife's plane that had crashed, and when he was told it was, he broke down sobbing so much a priest had to be called. Okay. Okay. Poor guy. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, just, I, I, oh. feel, I feel for him. Exactly. Your wife just died? He yeah. wailed that it was all his fault. He'd tasked her to go to Bay Como to pick up two suitcases of jewelry for him. Oh, the guilt. Just a day later, Gway was also among the looky-loos who'd raced to the scene after the crash. Distraught, he told police who'd been guarding the site that his wife was in there. He wanted to help find her. Okay. I, I mean, I can understand. I, I could... I, 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 I would want to run to the site. Or if you're the person who is a criminal, you would want to run to the site as well. From the New Yorker article titled, It Has No Name by E.J. Kahn, quote... 
Gui did not get near enough to see how horribly mutilated the victims were and to become aware that of all of them, the only body with a recognizable face was his wife's. Oh, shit. Nor did he learn until later that among the passengers, few possessions that were left intact were two claim checks in Mrs. Gui's purse for the two suitcases full of jewelry at Bay Como. Mm. End quote. Mm. Evidence. Yep. Gui was overly upset at the morgue back in Quebec City, now claiming he couldn't bear to identify his wife, Rita. His brother-in-law had to do it for him. I mean, sure, these are emotional times. What you wanted, you may have thought upon and now don't want, but it just seems odd that you would rush to this remote site mm -hmm. wanting to see. Yep. Behind the scenes, though, Gui was much more measured. Mm -mm. On hearing that an investigation was ongoing, he'd contacted a lawyer, not to defend him, the call was about whether he could sue CP Airlines if they were found at fault for the crash. I'm trying to reserve judgment. I yep. mean, you would have a lot of anger. You know, an innocent person would have a lot of anger and want to find an avenue to put that blame. Mm -hmm. Gway pulled out all the stops for Rita's funeral. Again, from E.J. Kahn's New Yorker article, it has no name, quote, he ordered an $800 casket, bought a wreath in his daughter's name, and as his own tribute, purchased a five-foot cross of red roses with a heart of white roses at the center, which bore the inscription, From Your Beloved Albert. He acted extremely distraught at the funeral parlor and at the cemetery, and some of his friends and neighbors, who knew that for two years he'd been behaving irresponsibly toward mm. his wife, marveled at the fervor of his anguish, end yeah. quote. So, I mean, you know, he's either showing that he's a very loving and compassionate and, and caring husband, or he's, he's trying to make it look like right. he's a loving, compassionate, caring husband. Right. Meanwhile, investigators had determined that the explosive device had been in luggage compartment number one. After narrowing down everything on the flight manifest that had been placed in that compartment, along with the luggage, there were three Air Express packages. Okay. According to E.J. Kahn's It Has No Name, quote, one of these contained automobile parts, another contained lingerie, and the third was a 25-pound parcel, contents unspecified, that had been shipped, according to the manifest, from Delphis Bouchard of St. Simeon to Albert... Alfred Plouffe of Bay Como, end uh, quote. Of those three packages, it, it's clear which one held explosives. Well, it was clearly the lingerie. Explosive lingerie. Well, Alfred Plouffe didn't exist. None in the community of Bay Como had ever heard the name. This was the package rushed to the plane by, mm -hmm. quote, a dark-haired woman in her 40s, who had arrived by taxi shortly before the plane was scheduled to take off and had departed in the same taxi. So that rumor may have been correct. No one knew who she was. Cops knew that this woman, though, would be the key to what was now shaping up to be a criminal case. I'd say. Police, RCMP and Quebec Provincial, began to look hard at anyone connected to the flight and what, if any motive, someone might have had to do such a thing. One man stood out for a couple of disturbing reasons, J. Albert Gway. Ooh, let's hear those reasons. The first reason is that Gway had purchased a $10,000 traveler's insurance policy on his wife when he'd purchased her ticket. So that's a lot of scratch back then. Definitely it is. Taken together with the second set of facts, this flung the 32-year-old flashy jewelry salesman to the top of the list. Mm -hmm. 
In June of 1949, Guay had been charged with attempted assault with a deadly weapon. A policeman had overheard an argument between him and his then 17-year-old ex-girlfriend named Marie-Ange Robitaille. Guay had pulled a gun and was yelling that he'd shoot her and himself if she didn't take him back. Guay ran off when the policeman showed up, but was arrested later on at Marianne's place of work. I have always found that to be a great tactic to get somebody back. Nothing. Tell them you're going to kill them and yourself? Yeah, people love that. Yeah. Marianne had told police at the time she'd been in a stormy relationship with the married Albert Guay since she was 16 and he was 30, like we mentioned <sighs> yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Her parents knew about him, though. But they had no idea that he was married, at least at first. They knew Gway as a bachelor named Roger Angers. <laughs> what a fitting, fitting name. Did they know he was 30, though? Yep. Because I'm telling you, if any of my kids are at 16... Well, here's we're going to get into it, Scott. They're, they're murdered. They're, this would not murdered. be called a relationship today. It would be sexual assault in many places, for sure. Yes. In Quebec and the rest of Canada... At this time, the age of consent in 1949 was 14 years old. It was a not officially raised to 16 years old until 2008. No way! Due to the rise in online sexual predation. Shut the front door. According to a CBC article, the law includes a, quote, close in age exception, meaning 14 and 15 year olds can have sex with someone who is less than five years older than them. Mm, yeah, still uncomfortable, but uh, okay. But so it, it wasn't against the law at the time. But the times have changed. Thank God. But as I mentioned, 16 is still the age of consent in Canada. It had only been raised two years from 14, so it remains that. There are exceptions, however, and those are that the older person is not in a position of authority or trust, and there's no exploitation or dependency. Holy shit. With the rate that uh, Canadian kids are maturing now, this seems really young. The troubles began with Mary Ange when almost simultaneously her parents learned of Gway's true identity and that fact that he had a wife and that his wife Rita also learned of the affair. So oh. it all came crashing down all at once. Oh, lordy, lordy. After he was booked for uh, the attempted assault, Gway called another lady friend, a Mrs. Petra, who arranged a lawyer for him. The lawyer got officials to agree to a reduced charge of carrying a gun illegally, and Gway received a $25 fine and walked free. This was too much not to pursue further for the aircraft crash investigators. Two motives, money and lust. Yeah, like one of those alone is a huge red flag. But this was both. My $25 fine, Mike? I get back then that's probably like 400 bucks, but yeah, for waving a gun and threatening to kill somebody, here, you give us 400. So crash investigators went to talk to Marie-Ange Robitaille with the description of the mystery woman, heavy set with dark hair, round face, and a dark complexion. They asked her if she knew anybody who looked like this that Gway might know too. Marianne knew who they were talking about right away. Her name was Margaret Petra. She was the woman who had helped Gway with the lawyer and yeah. the other thing. Okay. Although 14 years older than Albert Gway, Petra was well known to be smitten with the dapper jeweler. Jesus, this guy just like, he's fluctuating in ages. The cops tracked down the taxi driver who'd driven the mystery woman to the airport, and he remembered her well. They were 
supposed to keep really good notes about who they were driving oh. and all that kind of stuff oh, at that point. Well, there's no internet, and yeah. no GPS, and that's so you true. have to prove what your fare is, right? That, oh, that's very, okay. Hey. So police staked out Mrs. Petra's place with the cab driver in tow, waiting for her to come out so the man could ID her. When she did come out, she was wearing dark sunglasses, and the cab driver said it looked like her, but he was not 100% mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Cops decided to wait to gather more evidence, but in the meantime, the cab driver couldn't keep his mouth shut and blabbed to reporters who ran with the sensational tale. No. They told everything. No, this is, uh, this is people's lives, man. Gway saw the story in the newspaper, and he was furious. He went to Mrs. Petra's house, telling her they were in trouble and that she should consider killing herself and leave a note saying she'd meant to kill him, too, on the plane. What a piece of shit. Mrs. Petra did end up in the hospital after a fake suicide attempt using just a few pills that made her drowsy, but only after telling a friend about what Gway had suggested. That friend told someone else who told the authorities. (sighs) Mrs. Petra was questioned by police on her return home and admitted to placing the heavy package on the plane for Gway. She claimed she was told there was a statue in the package. Uh, okay, so yeah, my I, I suspected she's going to she was going to take the angle of well, I didn't really like I was told it's this or that, but wouldn't you be questioning like oh why a different name on the package why all yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Police had heard enough uh, and arrested Albert Gway for the murder of his wife. Good. Petra, and somebody else were arrested too, but we'll get into that. Oh, oh, a mystery somebody. From E. J. Khan's it has no name quote. Gway was locked up in the Quebec men's jail on the Plains of Abraham. A stool pigeon planted in his cell reported that Gway said Ruest had made the mechanism of a time bob for him. Hmm. The police at once went around to see Ruest, who admitted that he had made such a machine for Gway, and told them how, but insisted he had been under the impression that it was to be used to blast stumps. End quote. And so this man's name is Genaru Ruest, and he was a wheelchair-bound watchmaker who worked for Gway in his jewelry store, Mm. and he was brother to Miss Petra. Okay. Wow. And here's how everything went down. Gway had been planning to do in his wife for some time. He wanted to be with Marianne exclusively. He told a few people about it, including Ruest, the watchmaker, Miss Petra, and... Perhaps his girlfriend, Mary Ange, knew about it as well. Hmm. Gway had heard about the successful bombing of a plane for profit in the Philippines via time bomb and decided he'd like to emulate that. He promised Ruest and Petra a share of the money he'd get from the life insurance policy if they would help him. It, it takes an extra piece of shit of a human to... Like, wanting to kill somebody alone is disgusting but willing to take down knowingly willing to take down innocent people along with it that's extra special shit i was waiting for that yeah he asked ruest if he could build such a mechanism and he said he could so he was set to work building the works for the bomb Mm. just a note for anybody out there he's got a watchmaker so he knows how to make a time bomb anybody out there listening anybody ever asks you to make a bomb, be suspicious. Or say no. Like, it doesn't matter. Where, like, oh, I just want to blow up some trees or stumps. Or call, call the police. Just, There's that. 
don't I, you're going to want to be leery of what they're telling you. Sure. Just some good advice for y'all. Ms. Petra was set about obtaining a length of fuse, blasting caps, and dynamite. She'd lied to get the dynamite, claiming she was going to, quote, blast stumps. And it's a common tree removal practice in those days for particularly stubborn tree stumps. And I think they still even do it in some places. Well, probably. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I, that wouldn't be fun to do. Yeah. Well, anyway, Mrs. Petra obtained 10 pounds of dynamite and 19 blasting caps. Oh. And if a single blasting cap were to go off in your hand, you'd be holding up a stump. I've seen the safety videos. They're horrible. Oh, really? Oh, hey, yeah. Just a blasting cap? Yeah. I, when I was training in the junior fire department mm-hmm. back in my hometown, we watched safety videos about explosives. And, yeah. And yeah, a single blasting cap will take your hand oh, right Oh, I didn't off. know yeah. that. Well, Ruest and Mrs. Petra were do, doing their end of the deal. Gway took his wife, Rita. Mm-hmm. Watch in hand to Septil for a reconciliation vacation. Oh. Why'd he have his watch? Well, he was timing when the plane would be over the water. Holy shit, okay. The bomb would be set for that time, and the great St. Lawrence would hide all the evidence under a few fathoms of water. Okay. The Gways returned from their brief getaway. In Rita's mind, things were being patched up. In Gways, the sinister plot to kill his wife continued. As the bomb was being built, Gway made a couple of trips more on the route flown by Flight 108, watch in hand, looking for the exact moments that the time bomb should go off over the water. As the day approached, Gway convinced his wife to go and pick up two suitcases of jewelry he'd left behind at Bay Como. He often traveled there for work. Hmm. At around 7 a.m. on the morning of September 9, 1949, Gway picked up the bomb from Ruest. The timer was set to go off at 10.45. The bomb was put into a cardboard box and wrapped in brown paper and tied with a string. The word fragile was written on it on the paper. I'd say. According to E.J. Kahn's It Has No Name, the package was addressed to Alfred Plouffe in Bay Como, and picking another name at random, identified the sender as Delphus Bouchard of St. Simeon, a town 100 miles from Quebec. And there was actually a man named Delphus Bouchard in uh, St. Simeon who came under suspicion for a while. He, I'd say, he probably just like uh, got what, a yeah. white, white pages or it, whatever they it, had back exactly. then. Exactly. Just ran, yeah. Imagine being I guy, though. You're just chilling at home and some knock on the door and... We have some questions for you. And so what? Yeah. From Ruest's apartment, Gway took the bomb to the railway station where he met Mrs. Petra, who then took the bomb to the airport for its destination with Flight 108 and Oblivion. At Gway's 1950 trial, chemical, spectrographic, and spectrophotometric tests Whoa. were accepted as evidence for the first time in a Canadian court. Whoa. Police and scientists had spent months meticulously trying to paint a picture of the event, testing bits of the wreckage, especially those that had been directly exposed to the blast. From E.J. Kahn's New Yorker article, it has no name, quote, The Medico Legal Laboratories of the province in Montreal made more than 2,000 analysis, chemical, spectrographic, spectrophotometric, and x-ray of the various rags and tatters of clothing. Quote, by the time we were finished, we could even tell that someone on the plane was eating peanuts at the moment of the explosion. Damn! Bernard Perklet, one of the laboratory scientists, said, 
After determining the chemical structure of deposits found on some of the bits of clothing, the scientists went out and bought similar clothes, packed them in suitcases, and blew them up with dynamite. This produced identical deposits. When they used gasoline, black powder, white powder, and TNT to blow up other suitcases full of clothing, the results were different, end quote. Some pretty damn good detective work. Exactly. Maintaining his innocence throughout, the jury eventually found Joseph Albert Gway guilty after only 17 minutes of deliberation. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. They'd heard a mountain of evidence, uh, forensic and otherwise, against him. Even Gway's sweet Marie Ange had testified against him, saying she didn't love him anymore. Oh. oh. He was sentenced to hang for murder, and the judge emotionally admonished Gway, saying, Your crime is infamous. It has no name. Oh, wow. Yeah, because at the time, there was nothing to call it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, now we'd label it as domestic terrorism or, yeah, terror, or something. You, you yeah. Know, yeah. Ruest was convicted on January 3rd, 1951, and also sentenced to hang. Ooh. Gway, refusing to appeal his conviction, was hanged on January 12th, 1951, claiming he was happy to at least die famous. Oh, shit. I was going to say, well, why didn't he appeal it? You would, uh, who doesn't appeal everything? Well, he didn't. But, yeah, he wanted to die famous. Marguerite Petre was convicted in March of 1952, and despite appeals, Jeanneroux Roost was hung on July 25th, 1952, and his sister Marguerite Petre the year after on January 9th, 1953. Damn near everybody hung for this. Yeah. Wow. So interestingly, though, people thought that Marguerite may not have known, but... Oh, I... I, I don't she think... She was just delivering a package, Scott. I, I, I'm very skeptical of that because you would be questioning, well, why is there all this fake information on it? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm pretty sure she would have been given instructions like, okay, now don't rattle it. Yeah. Uh, don't move it about. Sort of hold it out in front of you. So you, you're going to be... Yeah, I feel confident that she knew. Um, That doesn't mean that she did. Yeah. But I lean towards she knew. Yeah, there you go. And I'm, and I'm pretty much a detective. So that's an interesting one, hey? Yes. And the wreckage of that plane is still there. Oh, So they, they never brought it out of the woods. The, they brought the bodies out. Yeah. But the wreckage is still there all these years later. Oh, my God. There's a bunch of photos and stuff on the internet. Of really? People, you know, go up there and look. And the photos, uh, there's photos of the, the wreck in, at near 100 Mile House, too. Yeah, so, yeah. I've seen those. But yeah, so... Interestingly, hmm. I mean, there's no real need to drag it out at that time. They determined what what the problem was, what caused it. Yep. It's in the middle of nowhere, No, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I'm, we're just so used to now having the planes uh, pretty much completely reconstructed. Yeah. You know, in a, in a hangar somewhere. But, uh, you know, back then, a lot of the... Yeah, if it, if it wasn't somewhere in a populated area, they would typically just leave it. Yeah. You don't really even have the mechanisms to necessarily get stuff like that out. No. Just other than to disassemble and, uh, yeah, wow. No disassemble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And who are we to not listen to, Johnny Five? Number five is alive. <laughs> I'm a terrible person. It's one of my favorite movies as Short a kid. Short Circuit? Yeah, as a kid. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. Yeah. 
and uh, where are you from? Cleveland. <laughs> I'm from Cleveland. I'm not doing the accent. No. Because uh, I'll get in trouble. Yeah. All right. So looks like it's time to uh, do the Patreon shoutouts for this week. To Patreon this some bitch. All right. Let's get to it. Let's let's talk to our uh, our wonderful Patreon patronites, patrons, patronites, patronites. Yeah, the people who support our show so kindly, oh, generously. First up, we have Lewis Harbeck, and he's from South Sioux City in Nebraska. What? I love Nebraska. I don't know why. There's just something in the name. So thank you, Lucas. Thank you very kindly. Uh, next up, we have from Germantown, North Carolina, Holly Ann Beverly. What did I, I just watch? I, recently, I guess in the last few years, I just watched a documenta- doc, documentation, a documentary uh, on, on Germantown. What's documentation? <laughs> Do you have the documentation for me to watch? <laughs> Uh, I, I watched, like, I don't remember what it was, but something took place in Germantown. Because I remember that name being like, oh, interesting name. But uh, thanks, Holly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie De Silva Prades from Cambridge, Ontario. I was so thinking that's got to be Brazilian or something. No, it is not. Is every like, name De Silva? De Silva. Yeah. It's like every, well, she might be. One third of the UFC fighters, by law, have to be named Silva. Silva. Yeah. Spider and have the nickname Pitbull. <laughs> so here we have Vivian Kolodichuk from Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton. Now that's a prairie's name, is it not? It very much sounds Kolodichuk. Yeah. Oh. Well, there's a huge Ukraine population in uh, Alberta. I liked how you went with Ukraine instead of the Ukraine, so we didn't get corrected yeah. again. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Scott. Yeah, I'm learning slowly. Diane K. Hazen or Hazen. Hmm. Where's she from? Oh, uh, Diane, are you asking? Yes. Oh, Diane. She is from uh, uh, Fredericton. Well, Fredericton, New Brunswick. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. What does she do there? Does she work at the nursing school or? No, no, they have a nursing school there? Yeah, they do. Oh, cool. No. UNB, yeah. no, no, she doesn't. What does she do? She works at Taco Bell. Well, there you go. Well, thank you, Diane. Yeah, uh, yeah. For your uh, contributions, and hopefully you're able to feed yourself because we know those jobs are notoriously low paid. Well, she she's a self-made billionaire already. Oh, so she's just working at Taco Bell. So just she to keep can herself busy. Just yeah, to keep herself you. busy. You what know? did she make a billion dollars at? Oh, you don't harmonica sales. How did you know? How did Wild you know? Guess. Yeah. They're hand-whittled harmonicas. A billion dollars worth of hand-whittled. Well, I mean. That's a lot of whittling. Yeah, but if, if you sell it for a billion dollars, Mike, you only, Just one you only need to sell one. Oh, there you go. I See? So. This is where she really was. She put some thought into it. She was smart. Now, Very here's good. one. Manasi Tamhankar. Yep. And so where's Manasi from? Burbank. Burbank, California. Yeah. Oh, in the TV business. Yes. Ah. Yes. In the game show? No. No, oh, she no. produces light poutine. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cooking show. I don't show. know if it's a she, though. Uh, he? <laughs> Let's not assume a gender here. Well, that's... Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, that person 
uh, he, yeah, he, he, that person, that person produces light poutine. It's a cooking show. Oh, it's a so they're ripping show. us off, so we should sue them. I know, no, we really should. So yeah. watch, watch your back. Uh, Angie Smedland, and she's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Oh, wow. Thanks, well, thanks Angie. Angie. You rock. She, completely. Rocking our socks, even. Rocking, socking, rocking. Brianne Godsell, and she's from Cayuga, Ontario. Whoa, I've never heard of Cayuga. Cayuga. But I've now heard of Brianne. Way to go, Brianne. Yeah. Way to go. Thank you. Way to go. And then we have Katie Haggerty, mm-hmm. and she's from somewhere in Canada, but I'm not entirely sure where. And how how, how do you know she's from somewhere in Canada? Well, her email address ends in .ca. Maybe that's like just her. Oh, it's like subterfuge. Exactly. Oh, she's a spy. Shh, Mike. Oh, shit. If you notice, I was trying to dance around all of that. I didn't want to let the cat out of the spy bag. Well, it looks like she's hiding behind her dog in her... In her uh... Which is a classic spy technique. If you if you see somebody, like they've got an animal mm-hmm. in their Facebook profile pic or anything like that. Okay. Spy. Guaranteed. Spy. Guaranteed. 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 Well, welcome, Katie Haggerty, if that's what your real name is. Mm-hmm. Well, oddly it is. Yeah. yeah oh, I didn't say, she, I didn't so say she's... She used a real name as a spy. I didn't say she's a good spy. And look at this. We have Shannon Damaskine from Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Sweet! So we have more people from way up north. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you for braving the cold. To, to click a button, <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. I yeah, don't know I, how it works. I have been like I, I did, I, I did hire some, uh, some plane advertising. Oh. I, I have a biplane that flies around, uh, oh. Yellowknife, with with a banner for us. Uh, although I, it, it happens at night because I got a discount. And here's one from uh, Amber Barbeau, and she's from the Paws in Manitoba. And that's where uh, one of the uh, Someone Knows Something uh, seasons took place. Oh, really? Yeah. So That's it, the actual name of a, of the a paws, city? Yeah. The Paws? Yeah. Or The Paw, they call it, yeah. That sounds like, like it would be a nickname for like some Gambino guy. Hey, don't mess with The Paws, man. Yeah, don't mess with The Paw. But thank you, Autumn Barbeau. I love your name, oh, by the way. Oh, that is a it great does, it name. It does kind of kind of flow, doesn't it? It really does. Autumn Barbeau. Yeah, yeah, I dig it. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thank kind. you so much. And let's check and see if anybody loved us on PayPal. I'm pretty certain somebody did. I, I have a sneaking suspicion, because I saw the email, <laughs> that somebody... Spoiler alert! Somebody gave us some love on, uh, on PayPal. So let's see. Uh, we have, oh my goodness, Cammie Herman. Thank you so much, Cammie. Thanks, Cammie. She woo, didn't leave woo. us any message, but we really appreciate you supporting the show. We know the message. The message is love. Get, and eat donuts. get them donuts. Exactly. Um, Angelique Cube. And that's Cube with a K. Oh, that's cool. Also no message, with a K. but... Thank you, Angelique Cube. Thank you, Angelique. Or it could be Cube. I like Cube. I like Cube. Yeah. It's an, it's, it's an interesting name. I'm it wondering is. what nationality Cube, K-U-B-E would be. Oh, they're from Cubania. <sighs> Somewhere over there. Yeah, Cubania. So it's a beautiful place. <laughs> and here's one from Lily Ann Bradley Gill. Oh, it's a lot of names. 
It says, Hi, Mike. Love the show and a proud patron, but I want to make sure that you all have a good supply of donuts for the week, too. Especially my favorite, sour cream. Smiley face. Hmm. It would mean the world to get a shout-out, as I believe I got missed a couple of weeks ago. What? Oh, my goodness what? gracious. No. I don't think we did, but... Oh, no, Lily, sorry. But anyway, Lily Ann from Montreal, Quebec... She says she's looking forward to more dark poutines and shenanigans. Well, what's that place with all the stuff? Like where they put all the stuff on their vests? Is it shenanigans? The shenanigans? And then, oh, you gotta shoot uh, super troopers. Oh, wow! I was drawing a blank there for a minute. Yeah. Well, sorry if we missed you, Lillian. You didn't have to send us more money to get us to say your name. Yeah, but... bribery does work. Though. <laughs> it does. It work. does. We it work. Does. Yeah. We very much appreciate, and you probably will enjoy the show this week because yeah. it is from your neck of the woods. Never hesitate to buy your way into our hearts. Yes, we are. Uh, <laughs> we are able to be bought in uh, in a very very easy way. Yep. Yep. Um, also, I got a couple of messages which are interesting. Oh, I like interesting messages. So here we are. Like so, Legsy Charlton sent us some money via PayPal. Yes. Uh, but we know where she lives, but she says, please ask Scott to tell one of his delightful tales about where I live and what I do. Oh, well, that that's easy. Okay. I, I can easily. Uh, she's from Papua New Guinea. Oh, Papua New Guinea? Yeah. Which I think now they just call it New Guinea or Papua. I don't know. Does but she raise guinea pigs? That's just a crazy... Why would you, why would you say that? Well, I don't know. Are, are guinea pigs actually from Papua New Guinea? No. Well, where are they from? We're talking. We're not. We're oh, now we're con- we're diverting this into where uh, gu- guinea pig history. No, no, mm. we're not. Uh, do you want to know what she actually did there? Sure. She was a tree climber. Oh, that's that's a job. That's a job. It's a profession. Climbing trees is a profession. Okay. Yeah. And what What is the goal? To get to the top. Yeah, but that's clear. That that's I that's a given. I yeah. understand. Yeah. But they put little beacons on there and stuff so that why? birds so that birds don't accidentally fly into. Oh, so them. she's like changing the batteries and the beacons at the top. Yeah, of the tree. yeah, that's exactly oh. what she does. Yeah. Is that it's well, really? Why is it then called a professional tree climber and not a professional beacon battery? Changer? Well, okay. They call like the the they call it the the actual definition is You're tree climber. Confused. No, no, You're the actual person. tree the actual definition uh, name is tree climber. But yeah. what what they what the tree climbers like to call is beaconeers. Be- <laughs> she's a beaconeer. Yeah, she's a beaconeer. Well, thank you, Legsy Charlton, the beaconeer from Papua New Guinea. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, there, you earned it. <laughs> beaconeer. Uh, we also got a message from David Boyd sending us some donut cash, but he also sent us a message oh. saying, first off, I want to say, keep up the great work. Listener since episode one. Thank you so much. Oh, that means wow. the world to us. Wow. And he's writing because uh, he messed up a little and needs our help. So a while back, uh, a good buddy of his, co-worker Brooke Lines, and he pulled some money together uh, so they could be patrons of the show. Okay. So he got the mention, but brute, brute, uh, brute, oh, brute. He got the mention, but Brooke Lines did not. Oh, Brooke, get a mention, Brooke, Brooke, because 
he says he's a numpty because she's contributed as much as I had, and she's also a big fan. Oh, Brooke. Brooke is an amazing friend, hard worker, loving mom, and wife with a super cheeky sense of humor. And it would mean the world to hear a shout-out from you boys. I and, like the sound of Brooke's jib. I like the cut of Brooke's jib. Well, you know what she what she might like to hear? What's that? If we tell her to go shit in her hat. Well, fucking clearly, go shit in your hat, Brooke. Yeah, Brooke, you know I mean, what? God damn it. We've had enough of you and your nonsense for giving yeah. us money month after month. God damn you? Why don't and you your go? patronage? <laughs> We're so grateful, we'll tell you to go shit in your hat. Go get a real job like a beaconeer. Like a beaconeer. And while you're at it, take a crap in your hat and pull it down over your ears. Go shit. So there you go. Deal with it, Brooke. Th- thanks so much, Brooke. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. That's pretty... it, it's, This is our lie. This is our life. This, this is, is our, our life. We tell people to shit in their hat. We tell people to shit in their hat. They don't get mad. And they give us money. They give us money yeah. for telling them to go shit in their hat. This is our life. Wow. Okay. We've got a pretty good Scott. We do. We yeah. do. I, here, here's a conversation I had on my day job today. Okay. Which, out of context, seems not very good. Oh. There's an email exchange. Uh, a request was made of me. Hey, uh, I don't think you sent us the dead bodies in the field. We're going to need them. To which I reply with, oh, no problem. I'll send them I'm right sending away. the dead bodies in the field over right away. And then other people are like, okay, thank, you know, and then we all kind of real had to step back for a second and go, you know what a context, this conversation sounds very morbid. Hey, can you send me those dead bodies in the field? Well, you do work on a vampire show, so there well, are- Well, no, I know. Bodies. Well, that's in context. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. They're real dead bodies. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. We take Interact as well. Uh, those seem to get dropped into my spam folder, which is interesting. But oh, anyway, okay. uh, so if you do send us uh, money via Interact, just fire me the email and say you did that. Sweet. Yeah, yeah with yeah. a message. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So until next week, Mm -hmm. what do we do? Go shit in your hats. <laughs> what is a new ending? No, it's not a new ending. Okay. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Chowder.